Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Having issues, but go ahead. Dave looks like every combo man I've ever worked with. <laughs> I wish I were sweaty earphones on and you know they're talking in some kind of warble with London, you know, <laughs> and they got the barbed wire fence being loaded up as a reflector. What I, are you I, doing? Uh, I'll be back with you later. All right, guys, we are live. This is episode 76 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host over 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 this area, Dave Park. We are here today with our guest, Nick Brockhausen, a Vietnam veteran, served in MACV SOG, doing clandestine operations across the fence. He is the author of Whispers in the Tall Grass. Dave, you have We Few. That's his, uh, his first book, We Few. And then he has a new one coming out later on this year in 2021 that we're going to talk about a little later. So, Nick, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, fine. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. We really appreciate it. And I, I just want to say up front that you are probably the most requested guest we've had. I've had so many people hit me up saying you got to have Nick Brockhausen on the show. So you are you are a fan favorite from the get-go. How many of them told you I owed money? None of them. <laughs> none of them. They read your books and they really enjoyed them. That's why they were. Well, that's what yep. they all say. <laughs> how they get their foot in the door that's how they get you right that's right yeah. hey you owe me a rolex so yeah. nick really the first way we usually get started on this show other than having a, a few whiskeys is uh we ask our guests what their origin story is uh, if you were you know spider-man got bit by a radioactive spider how, how, did, how did you find your way into special forces how, how did that whole deal come about well, it was a dark and stormy night, you know, uh, underneath a 5,000-watt radio station. Um, I grew up in Minnesota. And, you know, we basically, you know, we, I grew up in North Dakota and Minnesota on farms and, you know, in old America where everybody learned how to do things like fix a carburetor. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing, and it seemed natural. In, in those days, when your country called, you went. Mm-hmm. It wasn't any question. You got a draft notice or didn't like the draft notice, you enlisted in the <laughs> Air Force and uh, you know, whatever you wanted to do. So I, I graduated into, in, into the military basically at the base level of, uh, you know, a, a rifleman. 
and uh, you know went through the my first combat tour was as a as a rifleman, and I was laying on the side of the road trying to decide whether I was going to actually re-enlist, and I saw this feller coming up the road, some tall, long, lanky-looking feller, in tiger stripe fatigues, carrying a Swedish K with a silencer on it, and he had like about 40 of what looked like brigands behind him with all this man jewelry hanging all over him, you know, knives, grenades, and that. And asked the, the sergeant, I said, what, what's that? And he goes, well, that's one of those snake eaters. I said, what's that? He goes, well, you know, Green Berets, Special Forces. I said, where's their officers? And he goes, they don't have any. <laughs> so I knew exactly where I was going to go after that. So I, I made that path that we all made to, to get into Special Forces. Um, there was a lot different in those days. One thing I can tell you, if you get caught with a rucksack full of cantaloupe, in Camp McCall, that you snuck out, purloined from a field, and brought back to the other rats in your tent. If you get caught, you will eat all of them. And you will probably have diarrhea for about three years. <laughs> so things were different in those days. They, you know, a little, I think the last time I went down to, to McCall years ago, and that I was just amazed at the place and what they were doing there and different programs and that. So I went through all that. <coughs> when I um, when I went back to Nam, I basically got shanghaied by a friend. I was supposed to go to the Mike Force, which is a nice place because there's 240 other targets out there for the, the uh, Oriental gentleman to shoot at rather than just you. And I got, uh, I sent this guy, Bernie O'Connell, to check on our orders, and he came back and he goes, I got us a really good deal. <laughs> and when somebody, when your friend says something like that, the first thing that happens, pucker. What's his deal? He said, it's, it's an all-volunteer outfit, and people are, are in line to get into it. Right there, you know that's a lie. <laughs> Right there, I said, what's the name of it? And he goes, it's Max Sog, and the place we're going to is CCN. And it was like somebody shoved a hot electrical wire up my anus. Because <laughs> I had met a couple of guys that had come back from there, like Hardy Bachelor's brother, who was mad as a March Hare. And they, you know, I mean, they were good combat troops in that, but it was like everybody avoided them like they were lepers. So anyway, we, we ended up going up to Da Nang and got dialed in up there. And, um, you know, for the next uh, several months, I had the joy of, of running recon. So you got put in uh, command and control north. Uh, could you tell us about, like, getting introduced to your team, uh, getting introduced to, were they Montagnards, were they Nungs? Uh, who were who the Indians you worked with? R.T. Habu, I, I first got introduced to the Americans when I got there because Captain Manus decided I was a smartass and said, well, I'm just going to put you in there with two Southerners and see how smartass you are. So I ended up on R.T. Habu, and, and the Monyards for that team were all brute. 
Most of what we used up in command and control north were Sedang, um, Brew, Rade, and some Jirai, very few Jirai, then Vietnamese and some Cambodians and Nones, Chinese Nones. And so the teams were made up, of, you usually didn't have a mix of Nones and Mahers or Nones and Vietnamese. You know, it, it was, if you had a Nung team, you had a Nung team. Hendrix had a Nung team. He could never pronounce their names, so he named them after Daphne Duck's nephews. <laughs> Louis, Dewey, Louis, all that. And Louis could speak perfect American English. And he was always trying it out on people like, you know, like donut dollies. And it, it was ugly every time. <laughs> so you know, usually the teams were based on whatever ethnicity that you were running brood sedang the sedang are cool because they file their teeth so they you know they look like wolves when they smile at you good lord now when and, you talk uh, about the, well they're from the central highlands yeah when you talk about yeah. the brew and the sedang and them th those are all various tribes of the mountain yards oh yeah they're, okay. it's the daga people dagan and you know they're what, what's odd about them is they're an old people going back neolithic they actually have in their lore, their verbal lore, the of hunting elephants with long hair. So well, they originated up in China somewhere, and then you know, as everybody came in, they gradually compressed them down into the into the peninsula in Indochina. That's amazing. And the, the Hmong are related to them. The you know, there's. I used to have this book which I loved. It was all the tribes, all their cultural things, and that. And somebody swiped it from me at a party one night. It was an it was actual FM, you know, the really? yellow covered mm -hmm. cover with the FM twenty four dash dash one squirrel five, you know, the usual stuff. But it was a great book, you know. And the and the the Montyards are an amazing people. This right out of the Iron Age. You know, imagine that warrior culture from the Iron Age. Yeah. And then you stumble in there with all these man toys like machine guns and grenades and that. Oh, popular guy. And and some of these guys had been fighting for quite a while, right? You mentioned um, in uh, We Few that like some of them had, had served with the French Foreign Legion during the Indochine War. They, they spoke French. They spoke German. Yeah, Bong, bon, our thump gunner, was also a shaman. And and he had fought with Force Thirty Six, you know the the Legion group, the the strike group that went north trying to relieve Diem Diem Fu and that as a striker at the age of fifteen. Wow! And here we are in Vietnam and in in seventy, and you know he's still plodding up and down the mountain, hardcore, hardcore. And they, you know, they they just basically were trying to survive, you know. And everybody was fighting around them, and they got dragged into it. My uh, yard team leader, Kuman, had been fighting the communists for 12 years. Hard. And he'd already lost a family. Uh, they'd come into his village and butchered his wife and kids. So he had no love for them. Yeah. And the brewer brew, man. I mean, no matter whether they're, like, uh, we, retreat, we recruited Bond. Uh, out of uh, out of the POW camp next door. He was a former NVA sapper commander. 
But he was good. And the brood go, hey, he wants to come over and fight with us. Hey, you trust him? I'll trust him. I trust you guys, except with my money on my rations. Was, I mean, was it pretty, was that fairly common to find uh, Montagnards who had been with the NVA for whatever reason? And, and oh, yeah. Well, well, we had two hoys, too. You know, and, uh, there was a huge POW camp right next door to CCN. Uh-huh. We, we used to get drunk and then go take CS grenades and shoot them into the compound just to keep the MPs and them on their toes. Because <laughs> that's who overran the camp in 1968. The sappers came in from the sea, a company, and their plan was to kill as many Americans as they could, take the arms and arm the POW camp next door, and then just sweep into Da Nang and, and some kind of concerted effort. Yeah. So, so you uh, arrive at as you refer refer to it as Chuckle Charlie <laughs> North, uh, and so when you get there, how is that different than how you'd been trained? Because you had just been through the Q course, you had just gotten trained up as as SF rider, or, or you'd. Uh, wait, wait, I mean, you, you, I, I, you know, later on, I talked to guys from your generation. Mm-hmm. And the generation before that, you know, that, that were between me and you. And they go, well, what kind of selection course did you go through? I went through SF training. Because it basically was just another assignment. Yeah. The only difference was it was voluntary. And they didn't tell you why it was voluntary until you got there and found out what you'd be doing. And at that point, you're screwed. Who's going to go, well, you know, I, I really don't think this is for me and that, you know, and get off the truck. Right. So you get shuffled down to recon company, and next thing you know, some gentlemen are walking out there patting you on the cheek and going, take this bag of grenades with you. Might need them. Yeah. You it, said that peer pressure was a huge. Fairly quickly. I'm sorry. You, you said that peer pressure was a huge motivator while you're there, right? I mean, and it's not just peer pressure. It's, it's you're there with brothers in arms and the desire to perform to standard. Um, so when you show up at a unit like that, Whatever your expectations were or weren't, did you find that everybody who showed up there, or almost everybody who showed up there, just uh, put in maximum effort? Especially since the the high casualty rates and and everything like that. We were in the Rangers, right? Yeah, yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah, peer pressure. Well, and then I mean, we and I like to think we invented it, and gave it to you kids, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, and that lineage goes along a, a long way back. I never wanted to be anything but special forces. When you know, I mean, that was the, the epitome of, well, first of all, I read in Playboy magazine, which is like 1965, that the most wanted person to be at a party in Hollywood was a Green Beret. And I figured that was my path <laughs> to uh, hanging out with women who, didn't complain about the way I smell. So, I mean, it was just like being a ranger, you know, and I knew all the early rangers when you guys got the ribbon, the 75th ranger ribbon and that, that, that came out of Vietnam. And, and usually it was, they had, I think it was a company with each division and like four, four different companies or Zabatowski, who was one of our medal of honor winners was also in the rangers there. Um, Tommy Shook was in the Ranger Hall of Fame, 
who should have been arrested for littering, uh, is in was in that that group. Clem Lemke, you know, a lot a lot of good guys. You know, and that's what formed up the the heart of that. And you know how it is in the Ranger Battalions. Is is you're just not going to say no. Right. I mean, you have to be scared. Everybody's scared, crapless. Is that good enough? Are we getting with the sensors? No, okay. we're all good. Yeah. Jack was just kidding when he said this was PG thirteen. You can say whatever you want. We, we really? Yeah, we are marked. Yeah, you can. You you can. Fuck shit okay. ass cockballs yeah. pussy. Yeah. <laughs> These two youngsters don't know what they wandered into, have they? <laughs> Yeah, well, so to answer your question, that you know, when once you got there, most I, I think of we, we had guys to quit because it was voluntary, and and like I said on my interview on C-SPAN, and that there's no stain against their honor because once you realize what you were doing, it's not for everybody, right? You know, there's there's people that that choked up, couldn't you know, and guys that ran three or four missions and we're doing fine and they finally hit that one bright light where you're down to your last eight rounds of ammunition you're shot the guy you went in to get shot and you're trying to make your perforated ass back to the helicopter and that was it you know it, it, it just stopped it yeah you, you wrote about that in uh whispers in the tall grass too a few different guys you knew who they it was time they punched out they were like oh, i'm done and you were like you know that's that's the mature decision to make at that point when when you've really you know your, your nerves are frayed to that point yeah well i'll give you an example we, we had a really good guy former marine um did all right because you know he'd been been in combat before and that but just when we got on the ground we came back and uh, and the the yard team leader said he's not going out with us again because if he goes out with us again we're going to kill him that it just they, if the yards didn't like him, he was out. And, and he went from there to, to become the best AST that we had up at the top. The guy who brings you your target folder and tells you, <clears throat> this is the intel for the last five years. You know, these are the after action reports. And that really good guy, really good guy. But, you know, the yards made the decision. No, you know, we... We don't trust him like you, Chauncey. That's, of course, because he didn't owe him any money. Yeah. So. so tell us then about uh, you know your first mission with MACV SOG. I mean, you get on the ground, boots on the ground, get introduced to your team. What's the job? <coughs> well, I uh, first of all, the other half of my soul is a guy named Lemuel McGrothrick. And I pronounce it Lemuel, although he can pronounces it Lemuel. And he's a little short Alabama gator runner in that. And he's the other half of my soul. So we bonded right from the beginning. And it was, I mean, it's that's the way it is. I mean, it's either you do or you don't. You don't click or you do click. So we'd done a couple of training things, you know, where we uh, went out to cover somebody doing something out you know western then i came back and then my first real recon mission was in a um, place called dm10 dm10 is demilitarized zone target number 10 which is a huge 
extinct caldera. And it's got the spine crater all the way around except on one side and a trail coming up the middle of it that was probably meter, meter and a half wide. <coughs> Excuse me. And we dropped in. Yeah, we'd read the, the you know, all the intel data and that there was supposed to be a, a division in that area. They were all there. Right there. <laughs> so we lowered our came in on the LZ, got off, Mac got off the chopper. He was in the chopper ahead of me. He got off the chopper and he fell in the entrance of a bunker upside down with his rucksack facing down into the hole and then he's squaddling around like some kind of turtle in that. And the pilot starts to pull pitch and pull out of there. And I told him, put me on the ground. He wouldn't he started kept doing it, so I shoved a gun in the back of his helmet to put me on the ground. He can't fight with three guys. We can fight with seven. So they put us on the, the bunker and about 20 minutes, we were working all the air we could find. Everything Covey could call up. I mean, the fast movers, A1Es, you name it, just to get our sorry ass out of there. So that was my baptism of fire, and I came back. And Mac told me, he goes, the yards like you. And I go, why? He says, because you scream when you're shooting. <laughs> So that, that bonded me to the team. That's awesome. How was different war? Yeah. How is that different than your experience as a rifleman with the infantry? Yeah, you never know where you're going. You have no idea where you're going. You just you walk and you plod and people shoot at you and people fall down beside you and you get up and repeat the whole process over again. You know, and that, you know, that gets tiring. So that, the, the major difference is and whatever, you know, whether you're a Marine or an Army rifleman or, you know, uh, the grunt, um, that, that's your life. Misery, cold, and heightened moments of sheer terror. Interspaced with uh, G. I hope I don't forget what women smell like. <laughs> uh, so you do the first mission, and Mac, I guess, tells you that uh, that they want to take you on something easy for your first mission, right? Well, that was easy. Yeah. We actually, had, we were supposed to go on an easy mission, and the team ahead of us got shot up mm -hmm. running a bright light on another team. So they moved us into their slot with the target. We were supposed to be just south of there in another six by six no bomb box. And uh as well since you were down here and you studied the intel and that is pretty much the same up here. I mean where you put the overlays on, you can't see the contour lines because of the enemy unit. Oh yeah. <laughs> so that's how we got the target. So for people who haven't read your book yet, because I'm sure they will after this, what is a bright light team? The bright light team, in, in the beginning, they used the hatchet companies, uh, which were set up pretty much like, like the Mike Force, you know. Um, shock troops go in, you know, do raids, do ambushes, do rescues, whatever. 
and it, it eventually became too complicated because there's too many of them to haul in and haul out. So we started running our own what we call bright light, which is basically a rescue mission. You you have a team on the ground that's so shot up that it can't get to the helicopters on its own, or they just need to be beefed up so you can shoot your way up. And uh, normally, in, in the normal rotation of things, was that you would leave Da Nang, go to the launch site, either in Fubai or in Quan Tree, and you would. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Sometimes they send teams up there to do nothing but bright light. And they were usually heavy teams. Teams that were running eight, 10, 12, 15 people. Uh, and, and then later it got to be, you were on the draw. You got a mission. There's three teams up there. When one goes in, the other two act as a bright light. And then when he comes out, they switch places and that until they rotate the teams back to the dang and bring up a new batch of lucky winners for, for their lottery. And it's, it's complicated. We developed a lot of tactics that you guys use later. Um, you know, things like you got to clear everything in front of me so you use the air. Use them dropping hard bombs, dropping napalm, bomb, dropping don't drop CBU because you may have to walk through it later. The ones that didn't go off will. But, you know, use air uh, support to clear the area in front of you or blow blow an LZ that's closer to the team because you can't possibly drag them a kilometer and a half to the, the only LZ in the area. Um, I'm, I never went in and repelled it. Uh, I always went in on something that was either an old bomb crater or was big enough to get one ship in. And a lot of times we, we blew LZs with using the claymore with the ring main made it with uh you know the uh, dead cord in between and you drop the trees so you, and it still doesn't make a flat landing place i don't care what hollywood says a claymore does not clear off the tree and the ground and make it look like it was manicured 
There's big splinters of shit sticking up that the helicopter guys don't like. So, but uh, the, the bright light's basically a rescue mission. You go in, shoot your way in. Hopefully, you don't have to shoot your way in. Air air support has suppressed them enough to hold them back. But if you have to, you shoot your way in, gather up all the wounded and dead, try and drag your perforated carcass back to the helicopter. When you talk about the bright light teams and shooting your way in, can you tell us a little bit about like the statistics of MACV SOG and particularly like CCN? Like, I don't think people understand just how lethal that assignment could be. Lethal? Yeah, just what the life like how uh, well in terms of in terms of how risky it was for you guys. You know, I've watched a lot of war movies. The, the closest depiction I saw of what actual combat is like is uh, Saving Private Ryan. I mean, the photography on that and how they followed, you know, and, and the sound. You know, the, the sound of a high-velocity round going past your mortal coil sounds like a cra uh, crack. <laughs> and the, the louder it sounds, the closer it is to your mortal coil. But there's, there's so much noise on a battlefield, especially in the situations that we were in, because we were using air power to save ourselves, to soften them up, back them off, get them to the point where we could do the, the rescue or, or, or whatever. Or if you were a recon team and they'd run, you, run your ass to the ground, they're trying to kill you. You bring in as much air support as you can God bless the aviators. Don't ever tell anybody I said this. <laughs> they saved our cookies on so many occasions. And, you know, you got to, when we started the Special Operations Association, we were only letting associate members in, you know, people that had been in the marquee in World War II. Because they were originally, the SOA was for recon only. Some of you guys forgot that. And then it changed into all of SOG. And the first people we let in were the aviators. Because they flew us in. And then they were dumb enough to come back and pick us up. So we considered them brothers in arms. In that. And, they, and it really wasn't. It? Combined arms, the tactics, and the, and the uh, way of working that we developed through our missions. Uh, went a long ways all the way into uh, Desert Storm, you know, and, and beyond. To say, you know, and, and I'm happy to say I didn't write the book. Tilt Meyer wrote the book. And if you want to blame somebody, blame him. Where's <laughs> Tilt? Here's Tilt. We've had Tilt on the show before. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Hi, Tilt. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're enjoying wherever you're at. He's doing good. He moved to uh, Nashville, I think. He's in Tennessee. I was trying not to give that up. Sure, these guys are operators. I'm bad. With, I'm bad. Uh, but no, John's doing real well. Yeah, I talked to him this afternoon. Oh, right on. Yeah, yeah. So, they. I hope I cast some illumination on it didn't ramble on too long. no no not at all i i just i was amazing in uh at you said that while you were there or when you first arrived 
that they lost like a team and a half or or something like that. And and it, yeah, it was shortly after. Yeah, it was like within within before the month was up. When when I got there, we arrived and there was see CCM is a big compound right on the sea, right? Uh-huh. And that the front part of it facing the hardball was a, a perforated steel plate landing field. When I drove in the gate, there was a Cobra helicopter burning at the far end. It was still on fire. And I, I looked at Bernie, who was the guy who got us the assignment. Uh, he goes, uh, I said, Bernie, this doesn't look like one of those show camps you were talking about. Well, this, this looks like it might be a little more serious. <laughs> so you talk about the bright light teams and your second mission was actually <laughs> as a bright light, correct? Well, we did bright lights all the time. Okay. I mean, you were, you were there to run recon right. and, and the way that it was organized, and like I said, you know, after a while, the hatchet companies couldn't keep up with the tactics that the North Vietnamese were using because we were there. We we're shooting, fighting with them and all that. We knew how they were going to operate, especially when they came in with any, any recon units, you know, who would, run your ass down and kill you. They'd use the green troops to take casualties to get enough close enough to get on your belt buckle and then they'd kill you. And they were all, I mean, these were tough guys. And I found out later, most of them were NCOs. Well, they'd taken them from other units, hand-picked them in that, put them in special formation. The good thing about uh, Mr. Chuck, he was on the learning curve all the time. And if you weren't, you were dead. Yeah. Uh, all right. So then we move on. I, I'm just kind of going by your book, if you don't mind. Um, uh, the Bandit Brandy. Um, the Bandit Brandy. I knew these little suckers were going to come up with it. <laughs> oh, the, the titles? Well, Bandit Brandy, I actually went to Taiwan and I got a book on Merrill's Marauders because they have no copyright laws there. about hundreds of books and I was shipping them back to my brother right from Taiwan when I went over on uh, R&R. Well, actually, go over on the CCK flight so it doesn't count as an R&R, which was uh, when they sent the Blackbirds over mm-hmm. that we were using there. They were getting, you know, they checked your oil, wiped the windshield, do all that shit. And then they'd be three days, five days in Taiwan. So I got this book, and it was about Merrill's Marauders, and they were talking about when they brought them back from the Kakima airfield fight, they were all malarial and shot to shit. They brought them back to a rest area, which was by a stream, and everybody was washing, you know, getting back into eating food and not being shot at all the time. And they gave the officers a bottle of liquor each, whiskey, scotch, whatever they had. And the enlisted men got two cans of stale three-two beer per man, and while they were in the rest rest area, so they had been with the natives long enough. The natives were telling them, "Well, you make banded brandy. Well, how do you make banded brandy? Well, first you get a lot of tropical fruit. Well, first thing you get is a fifty-five gallon gas drum. You put it in that fast-moving stream and throw sand and gravel in there." Till it scours out the inside so it's like stainless steel. Then you set it up on dry land, dry it out, and you fill it with tropical fruits, guava, banana, you know, monkey shit, whatever. 
<laughs> and it goes in there and then then on top of that they'd put marijuana and then they would cap it you remember that old plastic from world war ii that real thick plastic they used to use for bunkers and shit like that that's a little they bit would before cap- my time nick i'm sorry they would cap it with that and then tie it up tape it up whatever they did in those days and put it out in the hot sun and let it bake for about five days when the black plastic swelled up so it was kind of a gray looking balloon on the top of it they would pop it pull all the marijuana out of the top put it on a perforated steel plate let it dry out for the natives consumption later and then they would drink it it was called bandit brandy now they put the officer each officer's bottle of liquor went in there too the scotch the bourbon the black the and uh, I decided to recreate that. And uh, we made it on a Thursday. It was because the weather was socked in the AO. We were closed down for like a week, week and a half. And, uh, and, and that was up north. So no, no teams are going up to Quantria and that. So we, we made this concoction. Up. I remember getting a canteen cup full of this stuff on a Friday afternoon. I woke up in the minefield on the on the east end of the camp, stark naked, with that canteen cup, and it was still about a quarter full. And everybody in the camp was looking for ah, who did that? Nick did this. You know, a bunch of little rats. So it was uh, it was an interesting experience. And better than the stuff. You know, the yards used to make this thing out of rice wine, rice. Yeah, they keep pouring Mompe. They keep pouring in water. The more water they put in, the drunker you get. This stuff was better than that. Much better than that. And Captain Manus tell me what a... Well, you started off with scoundrel, and I went to demon within about three sentences. (laughs) Now, uh, was this about the same time... uh that you woke up someplace you didn't expect to wake up? Woke up in the morgue. That was like a weekend later. Wait, how, and, how did you wake up in a morgue? Oh, God. Well, Dr. Cottrell, who's actually a staff surgeon, I, I got, first thing you learn in recon, don't get drunk and stay in the recon room. You may end up at part of a Nordic funeral and a boat made out of blown up prophylactics and rubber gloves. <laughs> or you could end up like me in the morgue. So I, I'm freezing. I, I came out of whatever alcoholic stupor I was in at the time. And I'm freezing. I'm going, oh, the little shits locked me in the meat lock. So I went to sit up. It was dark. Went to sit up. My head hit the top of whatever I was in within a couple of inches. And about the time I was recovering, and I was inside a plastic bag. And I'm going, what the, what have they done with my mortal coil? So about that time, the thing behind me clicks, and the shelf rolls out, and I'm in the morgue on one of the shelves, and there's a, there's a black spec four who's got a clipboard, and he's writing down the toe tags of all the dead that are in there. And I rolled out and I sat up and that's the last time I saw him. <laughs> <laughs> he, 
He disappeared so fast, he dissipated. <laughs> Gone. And about a minute after that, all these nurses and doctors come running in with the paddles and everything, and they're going, uh, you know, hold still, you know, you got, you know, we want to make sure you get away from me. I got that a tray that was laying, the, the guy who had the clipboard, his tray was laying on the floor, and I'm holding off the doctors and the nurses going, get away from me. Well, what had happened is I had passed out, and they took me down to the board, put me in a body bag, and slammed me in one of the drawers, and, that, and my toe hurt so bad, I was it was like swollen to six times its size because there was a toe tag, you know, and on the corpse, you put the cause of death and date, action and all that and they had twisted the wire down with a pair of pliers so it cut off all my circulation of my toe so it was like this big around and i'm trying to limp around with that toe tag and i was looking at it and the cause of death was bomb and i'm going i was in a bomb what if i'll get some off time well uh, do i get you know do i get to go on what do they call that uh, when you're not available for work profile can i go on profile yeah <laughs> then they on the to the, the add insult to injury they sent stevie comerford with me again pick me up he was an ea and and stephen comerford had a plate in his head and he also had orders from doctors never to use alcohol pharmaceuticals or gunpowder uh and he did was doing all three <laughs> he, he got he gotten a dsc in korea with the regimental combat team he was the friend of the guy who went and found his friend that got us in the ccm wow. they'd all been in korea together yeah that that crowd but, and they sent him to pick me up and he's like he's like, he looks like a deranged wolverine he's like ah. Those little rascals. Uh, when you get back, I guess you'll have to have a chat with them. Yeah. When I got back, I was looking for some midget killing hardware. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of crazy things go on when you. Well, you guys were both there. You know what it's like in the zone. It's not like, gee, well, you guys are different. I, in fact, we went back a while back, and we were talking to some of you veterans and that. And they were going, wow, you guys did this shit and got away with it? Well, let me tell you something. We wouldn't have lasted five minutes in your army. They took but, all the fun out of it. when he got to Fort Devons, had three DUIs and three consecutive nights. Uh, this, this, the last one, he ran over the MP stand. <laughs> these officers have really taken all of the fun out of war, I think. Uh, it's, it's just terrible. They can never take the fun out of war. <laughs> They're on. trying. They're trying. Well, they try. That's a norm. Sure, Lieutenant. <laughs> yeah. You got anything well, on, more on, get right on that. the first one before we go to... Well, that, that was one of the things that struck me about your book is it, as much as it is about your combat operations, it's also about <laughs> your shenanigans and... And yeah, that uh, so much of that stuff would not have flown at all in, in today's military. What are you drinking there, brother? Is that Buffalo Trace? No. Toxic? Toxic. What is it? We can see toxic. Uh, toxic, toxic masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's his whiskey. <laughs> we'll get into that later. All right. Well, you know, I had a lot of people that call me, talk to me, and they go, well, you know, you guys were jeep stealing, hell raising, you know, 
heathens. If that's all they got out of the book, they missed the point of it. Sure. You know, and we we did all that, and and then and I've talked to some of you youngsters. I've got some stories about you that ought to be a friend. Lies, <laughs> followed by more lies. Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember the A team that found Saddam's son's uh, exotic car collection, and were selling it into Germany to the Kurds to pay their intel assets. <laughs> that sounds like a made-up story. <laughs> no, 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 no. I know a couple of these rascals. But, but no, as you, you said, Nick, I mean, you're you're in that place. You're in a war. You got to improvise and overcome. I mean, that that's like a super SF thing to do. Like, you got a job to do. How do you get it done? Yeah, well, I, mean, I always considered myself a professional. Most of my commanders considered me as a management nightmare. But uh, you know, I I my generation, and I've seen it. Amongst the, the younger generation, you, we all treat special forces as a way of life, not a job description. You know, it's uh, we were there. They asked us to do something. We come up, came up with ways to do it. We suffered for it. Um, <laughs> we had the highest casualty rate of any unit in Vietnam, and uh, you know, I know very few people that did a tour there that did not get wounded. Or at least wounded more than once. Yeah. Um, but and you look at the numbers. I think it was like I've seen varying. Numbers. I saw like there was 6,800, 7,800 guys that served in ground combat operations and saw actual saw. And out of that, like eighteen hundred or thirteen hundred survived the war. So you know, it's uh, we 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 lost a lot of good people. But we got done what we set out to do, and and that's what inspired me when I went when I stayed in the army to stay in special forces and try to do just that same thing. And I got to tell you, after the war, we did a lot of really exotic things. We went on MTTs to Bolivia and trained the Rinches, the Rangers, to track down the bandits in the hills. We went to uh, went to Zaire. To uh, give a jump master school, that didn't turn out well. Uh, most of those guys are dead now, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we did a lot of different things in that. We developed all kinds of different tactics in that. If you follow the lineage of the 10th Special Forces Group, most of them were special projects people. After, because Jim Butler, my ratchet brother-in-law. Who was the adjutant there? Was looking around for like many Mac went to Leavenworth as a prison guard. And, you know, guys went to become drill sergeants and all that. He reached out for him to Mrs. A and pulled all those guys back into the tenth group, and that's what built the core of the tenth special forces group in the seventies. You know, you know it, uh, and and Dead A. When I was in Dead A, there were at least. 10, 15 guys that had been in CCN, CCS, or whatever. Most of them were problem children, but not me, sir. All that bad shit happened after I left. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nick, do you want to tell us about uh, the donut dollies and, and your fondness for them? Oh, sure. 
Yeah, but what are you trying to start a riot? I got enough grief over that. I became the most hated man in Christendom over that. <laughs> well, you know. And, uh, the Donut Dollies did a lot of good. They did. You know, but, you know, I, I really didn't have all that much interaction with them that was not on a negative basis. <clears throat> you know, it just, there was, there was, you know, they, they come out with these stupid games when I was at Rafelman. They come out and there's, you know, round eyed women, oh God, 270 smelly beasts and that, you know, and they're up front holding up these little outlines of the state going, what state is this? You know, and the guy who gets it right gets to get an extra donut and a handshake from something that smells better than the rest of them. And yeah, I think that the crown of that was Louis. Remember I was telling you about the Chinese, the Nong? Mm-hmm. That little bastard. We were at the launch site or up, up at Quantry getting ready. I'm trying to leave and go back to Da Nang because I've already done my bloodletting. And Hendrix's team came in on a C-123 Blackbird. And they had donut dollies on it. And the donut dollies come out. And this one actually looked like a horse. <laughs> she had this face that, I swear to God, looked like a horse. And the other one was some, you know, Rubenesque product from Ohio. And they came off the thing, and they were absolutely indignant. Oh, uh, let me find someone to report this to. And they're going past us, and Hendricks and his team comes up. Now, these are all knowns, right? <clears throat> and Hendricks is arguing with Louis, going, why did you start that? I mean, what, what were you thinking of? Well, what had happened, they were on the plane, and these two women took offense that there were gooks on the train, on the plane. Oh, my God. Why are we flying with these gooks? These gooks do this. These gooks do that. And Louis got up and he goes, well, I'm sorry you feel that way about us, but we're going on a particularly dangerous mission. I happen to own a whorehouse in the tram, and I'm pretty sure I could get more than five bucks for the two of you if you had a trapeze in your act. <laughs> they, they, they screwed right into the ceiling we're barking at the plane crew or whatever. And when they landed, uh, you know, they went huffing off to get the, they came back with the MP. We were taken off because the guy on the, on the caribou goes, you need to get on now because they're talking to the tower and the MPs are on the way. And then we got on and Hendrix went off to infamy or whatever he was doing with his star English student. And, uh, we managed to get back to the yeah, so they're, they're, the last the last thing they're expecting is for a a Vietnamese or a, you know to to stand up and in perfect American English tell say a joke like a special forces guy <laughs> like that must have been shocked. Years years later, I was uh, I was in New York City with a friend who uh, wanted to introduce me to the Tong. And uh, we went to the, I don't know, the Dragon or Retribution restaurant or whatever. <laughs> we were supposed to, there was a big meeting. We were the only white guys there. And uh, there was three of us. And he goes, well, the Tong leader's coming in from, uh, from Dallas. The big Tong leader. And I'm sitting there at this table with these Chinese fellows and that, and my friend. And 
the, the big commotion at the front of the hall and this guy comes in, everybody's like kissing his hand, bowing to him and everything. And I look up, guess who it is? No fucking way. Yep. Yeah. He goes, oh, Chung C. <laughs> oh, this is good. This is not going to be. Well, I can fuck you a kilo if you want. Yeah, 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 when, you say, when you say the tongs, you're talking about the Chinese mafia. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that's who bought the, the nungs out of Vietnam. The Taiwanese tongs and that. They actually managed to get them out of Vietnam. I probably shouldn't be telling you this on the open line. Well, you, you're not telling I'm 73. I really don't it's, give a shit. Nick, Nick, yeah. It's between you, yeah. me, Dave, and the internet. Yeah. And we won't tell. Yeah. These guys are lying. I can tell they look like fucking radio operators. Neither of them are smart enough to be radio operators, to be honest with you. No, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, well, you know, we'll get into it later, but our book that we wrote together that is about what we did after we got out of the military. And you guys, you know, you got to remember that you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. If you can atone for your mistakes and keep moving forward, great. If not, get divorced, find a young chick with really, you know, an arthritis problem, <laughs> you know, and get on with your life. That's what we did. That's Carol, good advice. So, so one of the missions you wrote about, one of the missions you wrote about in your book uh, was. The insertion that you and Mac had uh, where you observed a road repair uh, going on. And then I think kind of on the fly, right, decided to turn that into uh, a prison. Uh, yeah, a prisoner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the stuff we were doing was trying to find their network. Uh, you know, Highway 912, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was made up of complex of smaller trails and that. You know, they like built things underneath the canopy. They'd build false roads so that the the air support would be flying looking for trucks and they're nowhere near that because they're over here. The whole side of the hill's moving. That's all those trucks under under leaves and that. And we were doing a lot of uh, area recon to, to kind of uncover that. Find out what the what the matrix was. Now, the secondary mission was we were trying to find our headquarters. If we could find the headquarters, we could find the high-speed trails they normally... They, uh, the, the North Vietnamese weren't stupid. They did a lot of coaxial cable, combo line. We did wiretaps, shit like that. But a lot of times they'd send courier. And then we figured if we could grab a courier, we could grab his packet at the same time. And we noticed the road building. We figured out that, you know, we could probably grab a prisoner here. So we called up Covey, told him, we think we can, we're going to interdict this trail. Somebody put some heat on these people. So somebody starts moving around these trails and that. So they, Covey brought in airstrikes and those airstrikes scared them up and they started running the trails. And that's how we grabbed the guy. Eventually he lost him, but we, we grabbed the guy. Now, when you say you lost him, so you grabbed this guy, airstrikes are going on. How did you exfil? On strength. We pulled down on strength. And, and the way we lost him was Kuman cut him loose. They were hanging on the strings together, and the guy bit him in the face, and he just cut his rope. Whee! We went, oh, there goes $700. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so you're on a different... You got a bonus when, like the yards, you get one month pay, and you know you get to go to Taiwan for five days and take yourself into the scooper and convince yourself to get on a plane and come back. So you were on, and these guys are drinking Scott. For Christ's sake, that's a girl's drink. We're fancy. <laughs> men drink rye, and older, mature men mix it with absinthe. With absinthe, with that, yeah, you, you got you got more hair on your balls than I do, Nick. I'm not afraid to admit it. I don't have any hair on my balls. And actually, I don't have any balls. I left them in some woman's purse. Well, mostly frightening. When I catch the fat naked guy that runs around in my bedroom mirror, I'm gonna. <laughs> So you did say we could say anything. You can right? say anything. It's on. It's on. So I, I think that that uh, our viewers would need to understand that when you say you went out on a string, you went out on on Stabo basically. You had a harness, and they came and they basically just yanked you. Correct? Is that that you're works? wearing a Stabo ring, which is basically a parachute harness. I mean, it got simplified. It's not like the B12. Um, harness and that it's it it got down to straps and you know all the basic linkage and that you, you bring it up you hook you hook your legs in and your butts in and and all your web gear is on that stable ring all your ammo pouches all your everything is connected to that and it's got two D rings up here that when they throw the string down it's got two hooks on it that you clap two snap ones you put into there and then got a 120 foot rope that they lift up to the canopy and hopefully you fly off like Mary Poppins. <laughs> That's strings. And so you get picked up and you're on a different <coughs> string. You and Mac are on a different string than the prisoner. Uh, no, you're you're hooked together. Okay. When you get on the strings, you're all together and then you hook snap links into each other. Okay. And we 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 figured out. We figured out we wanted to send the prisoner out first, and we put Kuman and uh, Tua on the strings with him because we were at high altitude. We were up by the ash hill on the, uh, the west rim, and, that. and they were pulling him out. At that altitude, you don't have a lot of lift capability for weight. So there's like three yards on it. We said, well, great, we'll get him out, and then we'll come out afterwards. So we had... Going into a prisoner, oh, and one other yard, the, the lightest one, T.T. Lloyd. And then Mac and I and the other four yards came out on the second string. So we're hooked together like this, and we see them ahead of us, and all of a sudden, one of the dark spots underneath the helicopter just drops off. What had happened was the guy, he was trussed up with pipe, you know, the plastic cups and that. And uh, he had gotten this swinging back and forth, and his snap link came loose, and he kicked away from Kuman. And when he came back, he grabbed onto Kuman with his teeth in his face and bit him right here. Holy shit. And, and Kuman, Kuman just reached up and took a knife out of him. Sayonara. Straight to the ground. And when we got him on the ground, he's going, he's still spitting blood and everything. His face is bleeding. He's going, number 10, BC. No need BC. No need prisoner. Number 10. Holy okay. Shit. That sounds good. 
Well, our next trick will go and see if we can kidnap a tank. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you you went into a book, your book also about how <clears throat> they. I keep coughing like that, not because I'm a coke freak. Because really. he has COVID. I have COVID. Yeah. We we don't pry. We don't pry. Whatever you want to share, I, I, you can share. I love this. He looks just like the captain of it. Well, we're not here to judge. <laughs> uh, you talk about um, uh, like prisoner fever, where right. every, everybody starts getting the bright idea that now we like every op needs to be is, is centered around and snatching somebody. You know, the most valuable prisoner that they grabbed when I was there was grabbed by Eldon Bardwell. Oh, you know who Elder Bardwell is? Yeah, he's a legend. I knew him when he was a staff sergeant, and he did not scratch his nuts with a salad fork. (laughs) But Eldon grabbed a prisoner. You know what the prisoner did? Was he a battalion commander or special ops or anti-recon? Guess what he did? He was the cook. And he had the roster of all the units that he was supposed to feed. No shit. Right down to the last private. They grabbed him with his rosters and his intel and all that. And they knew every unit that was in the bowl of the DM-10. The 309th Hot Rocket Division, Battalion 4, Major Nung. You know, I mean, everything. He was a cook. Unreal. They never knew what you were going to get. You know, you hope that you get an officer with his... uh, you know, map map case and all that stuff. But you you might grab some guy that's just some scared private. Well, the two guys that were with that officer were both privates. Both of them were brothers. Yeah. And then Eldon also told me he found a place out there that was a, a message and born in the north to die in the south. Carved into a tree. Wow. I always used to carve in the trees out there. John Wayne is my father. <laughs> Didn't work. No. Uh, and then I guess one of the last things we'll cover from this book, because uh, I want to, I want you to tell the Buffalo story, but I want you to tell that like on the. Uh, Did he say that was the last thing? No, 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 no. Are we done no, already? No, no, no. Little no, shit's no, kicking no, us no, off. No, no, no. Well, Look, but, but what was the story you wanted me to tell? And, well, later, and, and well, don't call it a story. Later, actual account of the events on the ground. Well, I would like you later on uh, on sort of our exclusive to tell the factual events of the buffalo uh, that you witnessed. Um, the what? The buffalo. The buffalo. Oh, the buffalo. Yeah. And, and no, no, they're talking about Boudreau with his fucking Western novels and shit. And. <laughs> Yeah. And, so and if we're, we're if we're, we're up at Quan Tree uh-huh. and the yards want to sacrifice a water buffalo. I mean it was like rained in, there's nobody in the AO, all right. So they bring in a water buffalo and they got this big rice straw collar and rope that holds the buffalo's head out stretched like this. And <clears throat> the deal is that was a very good principle. Well, I've done it several of those. Yeah, I also can do a chicken. Wait till later. So they they bring this buffalo in. They got you know, and, and Boudreaux. You got to remember, Pappy Boudreaux 
Uh, God bless his soul. He passed a while back. And then. He was the reason that Quantree Lunch Site ran. He was a senior E8, uh, mean and nasty like a snake. <laughs> and uh, Major Slatton, who ran the place and that, him and the uh, Boudreaux and the medic were feeding him some kind of pharmaceutical cocktail. They kept him in the oblivion until he signed papers. So they ran the launch site. So Boudreaux's in his pooch, and we got this big thing going on with all the way. There was four teams up there, <clears throat> plus a part of the hatchet company, so, you know, protecting the launch site. And they have this tent thing. I forget what festival it is, you know, the festival of Buddha's shining balls or whatever. <clears throat> and they're, we're going to, Sacrifice the water buffalo. So the idea is that one man, one of the munyards, usually Bong, the shaman, would stand there with this big, long, carved, looks like a, what's that, a Japanese spirit, Asagai, not Asagai, uh, Saga. You know, it's got the big, like, buoy knife end on it, oh, big, yeah. long thing. And then one guy is to cut the buffalo's neck through with that. And the other one is to stab him just behind the rib cage and disembowel the water buffalo at the same time. And uh, Mac, my little gator friend, was the one with the hatchet to cut, you know, to cut the buffalo's neck. And I, the chump, was the one with the spear who was going to disembowel. And we were doing the whole thing with the loincloths and all that. And uh, Mac takes his swing. Cuts the collar and the rope holding the water buffalo down. Oh, Just about the same time, I stick the spear inside of the Monsieur Buff and disembowel it. And it didn't get all the way through because he turned on a dime. Like one minute he was facing that way, and the next minute his two really red eyes are like that far away from me. And he's starting that blowing blood, shit, and that. And we take off running. We run underneath a Jeep. And the buffalo wandered, you know, rushes right over, takes one horn, flips the jeep off of us, and then starts running around. Finally, we we get past, we go right past Boudreaux's pooch, and Matt slaps the door so it swings open, and we run around the hooch, and the buffalo go right into the hooch, and and Boudreaux's laying on his bunk reading Zane Gray or whatever it was, and the buffalo. Came Came in, just totally trashed his hooch. He had to roll the bed over on top of himself to protect himself. And he ran, the buffalo ran, actually ran out the next, the outside wall. And then finally, one of the yards shot him with an M79 and killed him. Jesus. And I dug, you know what a piss tube is? Yeah, oh, you do. Well, let's explain to the public what a piss tube is. That's where you take an artillery canister that holds an artillery round, which is made out of aluminum, and it's about, where am I here? Over this way? Yeah, you're good. Oh, wait. Yeah, that uh, big one. That, that and and you bury it in the ground, and then people that have to urinate and relieve themselves come and pee in that tube so it goes down and becomes part of the environment. The owls are friendly and the seals are, are living well. <laughs> I dug piss tubes for a month then. 
But there were so many. You could you could walk out any door of your hooch on that compound, and within fifteen steps, have a piss tube near you. That's how many we put in. Boudreaux, nice guy. So I want to ask you some questions about your second book here, Whispers in the Tall Grass. Uh, I'm going to go through am some. I, uh, am I getting too long-winded? No, not no. at all. No, not at all. No, yeah. this is great. Uh, I've got to go I want to make sure for my fans so that. Uh, speaking I, I speaking I of which, I'm going to go through some of your favorite in jail. Now, uh, that they're submitting. Um, so Joey says, love what you guys are doing. Thank you, Joey. Uh, Anthony says, due to your book, the legacy of Bandit Brandy lives on, at least in my unit. What's your preferred recipe? Spill the beans, Mr. Brockhausen. Thanks. Well, I think you pretty much told your, your preferred recipe, right? I didn't give him the dosage. What's the dosage? I could do that if he wants to text me on, you know, on Signal, which the NSA listens to, and uh, I could give him the All exact right. dosage. S send us an email, Anthony, and uh, we'll get we'll get to you on that. Uh, hmm. Douglas says, "Does Uncle Nick have the pocket knife that he found in the World War II plane wreckage still made by, by Lagoué?" Uh, with the B on it. Legionnaire, the, the classic knife maker for the French military. And, and that's that's a story um, you tell in this book. Do you want to talk about that for a sec? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a dry hole. Uh, we went up on, yeah, you got to remember the Ashow runs up north and it climbs up into the Laotian Plateau in a series of steps. You know, my 30 meters and a 10, 10 meter wide step and then 30 meters and 10 meter or 10 meters, whatever. And at the far end of that is the area that slices off into northern Laos. And we, I don't know how we got this target. I, I have no idea at all. I don't know what they were looking for. It was just, a, it was an area recon to go in and see who's there. And we we went in, and the target folders were Ken Holmes would know because I think it was the AST on that. Um, it was the 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 newest uh, re report AAR on it was like 1965 or something like that, and we're going shit. Okay, you know, probably nothing there. We're going to have a barbecue, call in the highway patrol, have a good time, you know, get some addresses. And uh, we launched in there, we got in, and it was, from the very beginning, it was spooky. We got on the ground, we started moving. Within the first 500 meters, the yards were all jittery. You know, I mean, they're, what's wrong, Mac? And he goes, go check with Bob. So I go back to Bond, the shaman, and I go, what's going on? He goes, oh, bad people, snake people. What the fuck are snake people? Oh, no, bad, number 10, number 10,000. So we go a little bit further, and we finally worked our way. There was a like a cleft, a narrow gorge going up to the Laotian Plateau. And it got narrower and narrower the, hard, the farther you climbed up. We climbed up that for about a thick, maybe a little more. And as it kept going, a big tumbled boulders, dip, 
you know, steep cliffs on both sides, working our way up and that. And we, we got to this place where we found this cave. And this cave was, you know, the, the, the point came back, and I think the point was uh, some pot. And some pot came back, and his eyes are about this big around. And he's going, oh, number 10. We're going, what do you mean, number 10? Oh, number 10. He goes and talks to Kuman, and then Kuman comes over, oh, number 10,000. Uh, uh, that means really, really bad. So we go up and we look at it, and it goes back in maybe 20 feet, 30 feet, something like that. And then the back is, uh, best I can describe it is a shrine. There's a, a, a bamboo pole, and hanging from it is... Um, the remains of a leather helmet, light helmet, and a pair of goggles. And there's all kinds of, there's bear, bear skulls in there. You know, bamboo bears. And we're like going, and everything's covered with mold. Everything. Mold and lichens and, and moss, whatever, went in there. So I started to go inside and Kuman grabs my arm. Oh, shit, I'm tent, don't go in there. So Bong comes up to shame and he goes, you know, we, we must leave now. So I'm still looking at this thing and I'm going, wow, that's weird. As we climbed up the escarpment, got on top, we went about three, four hundred meters and we stumbled across uh, an old French fighter plane from circa 1950s. It's got that really weird dark green paint on it and that that they use. Um, it wasn't a P-47, it was a something like they called a buffalo or something that the frogs made. Had a coffee maker in the cockpit and <laughs> a football issue. And we, so we're all over it. Uh, you know, the thing, the canopies half slid open, climbed in top and that. And I I got, got down inside and I'm digging around because all U.S. fighter planes that went down Underneath the ejection seat was a, a drawer that had a 22 caliber silenced pistol, rations, antibiotics, and in the form of blank slugs, coins, whatever. Usually around, in those days, $15,000 or $20,000, whatever. But it was at 35 an ounce, it was a lot of gold. But when we went in on Rex, we always, no, we're there. They're doing the government's work. Why not check, right? So we, we went underneath the seat and I found it was, the tray was still there and it had been pulled out. It was, the, the sliders were there, but the tray was gone. We later found it over by the starboard wing. And there was down in between the, uh, the, the seat brackets and that was this night. It was all rusted in there from the weather, and that. I dug it out. And it's a langolay, langolay, langolo, and they are. It means bumblebee, and they are the official knife maker for the French military. I still have it to this day. Every once in a while, I go out and I prick myself with it just to make sure I'm still here. And the uh, the snake people. They, it turned out that they were another mutton yard tribe, right? The, the, the yards were scared to death of them. They they said yo number ten we don't don't look at them. I found out later that uh, 
Kuman and Chuad both looked up from where they were moving. There was a, a snake person like within five feet of them. And they immediately cast their eyes down. They they got they put it this way. The North Vietnamese weren't in that area for a reason. And uh, when we when we lifted out, I remember looking back down at the LZ and two guys showed up, two monuments, primitives. You know, with one of them was carrying a Mat 49 submachine gun, French from the oh. French Indo-China War, and the other guy was carrying bow, arrow, blow gun, and and the usual man jewelry. And I was like looking down and go, wow, glad they got out of there. Yeah, it's like looking into the past. It, yeah, was I, the. I first thought they were Democrats. What <laughs> <laughs> was the fear because of uh, like superstition? Was it because they were headhunter cannibals? Okay, that's what I got out of Bong. Like when we got back to to the site, I had to go through like two days of cleansing with you know herb smoke and all that bullshit, rubbing copper pennies on my forehead and my pecker and whatever. They. uh yeah, Bond told me, he said, uh, these people eat other people, and they take the heads. And we all know that. And we're all scared shitless of them, basically. What it boiled up. Wow. Sure. Um, so, AJ Gamble says, thanks for another epic guest. Love his books. Uh, uh, Douglas Peck had a second part of that question. Uh, what happened to your SOG knife you were wearing on the cover of We Few? Gone. Gone? Gone. Gone. First of the Cisco knives that they produced for the SOG knives and that wouldn't hold an edge, and they broke a lot. So, you know, I, I wore the SOG knife probably half my time there, and then I, I switched over to a K-bar. And, uh, you know, that uh, actually, boys, what I have here is a, fair a, knife, a knife that was made for me by a Fan, a fan, who's a master knife smith. That's all Damascene steel, and that's a copy of the M42 original commando knife. That's awesome. That's amazing. So, if any of you are out there thinking about maybe, you know, lauding my authorial qualities in that, uh, a knife would be nice. So, Nick, did you start using a K-Bar because in your heart of hearts you wanted to be a Marine? Well, actually, I wanted to be a cook in the Navy. <laughs> no, and they got sharper cutlery, for sure. Right. So, no. <laughs> Why not? Uh, Andrew Is asks, that or be an exotic dancer in Berlin? Andrew uh, says, I need to hear more about the Zaire <laughs> Jumpmaster course that did not go well. Master course in Zaire. Oh, no, 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 you don't, young man. <laughs> All right, that's okay. He has another question. He, he, he's saying about you drinking absinthe. He says, What is he, a, an 1890s bohemian crypto Marxist literature professor? So he's, he's answering like he's on one of the second games. What is uh, what is that? What was it, 18th century, 19th century literature professor? An 1890s bohemian crypto Marxist literature professor. That is me. Shut up. This guy's a, I'm telling you, this guy's a troll. 
<laughs> He's from the Democratic Party. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We know Renee. We know where he lives. We know where his children go to school. Uh, Hammer and Nails, thank you for the donation. Uh, so, Nick, a lot of... um. Somebody donated to you guys because oh, of oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they did. Oh, we're getting, oh, yeah, we're getting new rich because yeah. of you. We're retiring after this oh, show, yeah. Nick. Yeah, well, we need to get into the new book, too. Yes, we will. Yeah, that's that's what we're going to talk on the bonus segment. I, do, I just want to, uh, for a few minutes, you're drinking toxic masculinity, just slurping it down. You're full, you're full of toxic masculinity, Nick. But you look at them, they're measuring the bottle. Love this. <laughs> Whispers in the Tall Grass, this book starts off like you guys are in a lot of trouble, your team. And a lot of people keep asking in the chat here, what the hell did Cookie do, your teammate, that got you guys in so much trouble? Oh, no. Oh, no. I don't know to this very day. Really? Nobody, nobody ever gave up the secret of what Cookie did. I know that him and Rocky Sherman were involved in it, the Ranger. You know, they a little Sicilian cab driver. But uh, whatever they did in Saigon, nobody would talk to them. I mean, the, you know, House 10, when they threw us out, the Air Force crew that flew up, they knew. Oh, well, you are the guy. So, yeah, well, you know, and when we got on the ground, Captain Rob, who was formerly in the Phoenix Project, and is a, God bless his soul, he passed here last year and that, but uh, he was a, uh, he was an enigma. He wouldn't even tell us. He just snickered at us and went, hey, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> Never found out. Don't want to know. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it involved a manatee and a, a, a pre-teenage girl or something. I don't know. <laughs> so a lot of uh, what you write about in this book, aside from the snake people, that insane story, is uh, your team working uh, to tap enemy combo lines with like induction cables. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the, the, and that particular chapter where I was laying with my ass hanging out all over the place. Um, the, the first wiretaps we had were god-awful devices. They were probably, you know, 13 inches long, 4 inches thick, and some kind of reel-to-reel bullshit on them and that all undercover. And they would only last for six or eight hours, and then you had to go back and pull the spools off and put them back. And then they came out with a smaller unit that was really great. And it would also, you know, the, the normal wiretap had like a, a pair of alligator clips mm-hmm. that had like a you know, like a long prong, and you put it into the wire, and then it would pick, pick everything up. It was some kind of radio 05B, you know, electromagnetic Flux, uh, very girly, whatnot. And then they came out with one that actually wrapped around the wire and it was and coaxial cable. And it still had little teeth in it. But the big thing about it was the little cassettes would last for 24 hours. So we, I, I only did one, I did one successful wiretap and another one that didn't work out. So where we didn't get any, any traffic at all. And they were a good idea because the North Vietnamese knew if they came up on the air, uh, what's that, Moonbeam or somebody like that be up there, you know, listening to what they were saying, <clears throat> doing the RDF and all that. So they, they went to using hardware and courier. That's why we tried to do the 
prisoner snatchers because they we knew they weren't talking on the radio. They'd use couriers to be drop bombs on their little asses. They'd get the couriers up and move them, tell everybody what to do before they got up on the on the on the air. So the wiretaps were it was a tool, it was a useful tool. Some guys got good traffic. Some of us got mediocre traffic. Some of us got, you know, doggy porn out of Denmark. Who knows? <laughs> and the, the, I think it was the first one you did. You talk about how you're sitting there. because So like someone has to have eyes on the tap, right, or be close by. It went like, down to change the tape. And, and that was when the I NBA put, were, like, doing a class. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, they came up. They, You know, I was laying there sweating bullets. And, uh, well, they had to go down, change the tape. They put it in the day before, and I changed the tape once. And then I was going back the next day to change the tape. Mac decided I was the best one because I was the best crawler. <laughs> I could crawl without bruising the underbrush. And that, this is how he's explaining it to me. Right. And him and Cookie are up there with the rest of the headhunters. And they're covering me, and I, you got to move real slow. And you got to remember, the other guy is trying to stay alive just as much as you are. And they're living in that environment that you're living in. Mm -hmm. So every little thing like this insect stopping, talking, the bush goes silent, bruises on plants, and that all are indicators of just how close you are to getting your butts blown away. So we're real careful about moving, and it might take you, I mean, normally you can go from here to 25 meters in a couple of minutes or a minute. There it might take you half a day to get there. So, but still within the constraints of what you got to do. So I'm down at the thing, I get the tape out, I pulled the old tape, put a new tape in, <coughs> and I'm on my way up, back up the hill, <coughs> excuse me, about 15 yards from where the tap is, and I hear these people coming up the trail. Well, first thing I hear is a click on the emergency radar, the earth tent, which means, watch your ass, something's happening. And I go still, and I hear these people come up from below me and behind me, and it's about, well, first, first thing that came was two guys with the headphones and the minesweeper-looking device that they used to check the load loss on the line that basically tells you whether there's a tap on or not, right? And they're going along the wire, and then they left. And then I started crawling back uphill, and like 15 minutes later, here they come. And remember, I'm trying to move slow at the same time, and they, they come up with about 20, 25 people, and they're, they sit down on this little hillside on the other side of the trail, and they start giving a class. I mean, I've been in enough classes. I don't care if it's in Lithuanian. I know what's going on. So I'm sitting there going, oh, shit. And they go on and on, and I, I hear a commotion, and then... Typical NCO shit. I hear this guy over to the side going, and then a couple of slaps. 
So then they come down, they break down, and they move off. And I finally get up back up to the top of the hill, and I ask Mac, I go, what's going on? He goes, <clears throat> well, they came back up to give a class evidently, and we were laying there, and we were watching to make sure they didn't see. I, I've never felt so exposed in my life. I was trying to be a dandelion. I didn't make it. And the, a couple of privates fell asleep in the back rank in that. And I guess one of the NCOs went back there and jacked their ass up. Was, yeah, little Jack, wake up, you know. And then they moved on. And we were getting up there. We, we, we were going to try and pull the tap. Said, no, we'll leave it here for 24 hours. We'll come back and get it. Matt. And I, when I put it in, I put a toe popper. You know what a toe popper is? Mm -hmm. Little so landmine, that, yeah. That is a landmine designed to remove your lower leg and your junk. So that's what they put in there. And then I mousetrapped the whole thing. And we said, well, we'll just leave it in there. We'll come back in 24 hours. We got back up the top and not. 15 minutes later, before we were ready to move, 40 guys came up. And these were not a class. They were looking for us. Either they noticed me, you know, oh, look, there's a meat-eating gringo laying over there with his butt showing. Or they noticed a lion loss or whatever, and they started hunting us, and they found the tap. And when they found the tap, the guy picked it up and blew up him or whoever was near it. And then we threw grenades. And, and never shoot, throw grenades. Remember, grenades, you don't have to clean afterwards. <laughs> so, and they don't give away your position. We threw the grenades down there. Cook yelled up. You, there was a couple of wounded. He yelled up at Mac, you wanted, want me to go get one of the bodies? He said, no, we got to get out of here. So we hauled ass, and for the next, I don't know, seven, eight hours, we were on the run with them on us trying to box us in. But that was the one successful wiretap. We, we got about, about 18 hours of real good traffic on that tape where they could say, well, yeah, this is the 309th Heart, you know, Hot Rocket Division. The commander's got piles. And, and that coax cable was running along like what a ridge between two fairly substantial. <laughs> it ran all the way down that valley. Mm -hmm. it, there was a juncture of like six trails where we knew that they were in there. They had bunker complexes and all that. We were slightly northwest of there, up on the ridge where the main high-speed trails that would be used by the couriers and people moving troops around. And it was right along the right along the trail. I, you know, how I found it. I was watching as my one zero who was spent. I had spent most of my Vietnam career picking up after he tripped over something, tripped over the wire, <laughs> and fell down the slope. That's how we found him. Nick, uh, you know, we're just kind of scratching the surface of both of these books, but, I mean, that's that's okay because people can go and read them for themselves. Um, before, we're, we're going to talk about your new book coming out later this year in detail on the bonus segment um, with your co-author and partner, uh, Jeff Miller, um, but for just the the mainstream audience, the great the big bad world out there, could you give a little bit uh, like just a, a short synopsis of what the the new book is uh, is about in, in the title? First of all, I'd like to thank my fan and those of you that hate me because it makes my life you know worth living. 
And uh, I, I thank you all for that. That would be my co-author, who I've been together for 50 years. It's worse than a bad marriage. But anyway, the second book is called Vagabonds, Tourists third in the Heart of Darkness. What? Third book. Third book. What the hell is he doing with this thing? Is that the white supremacist thing? It's a, it's a code signal. The hell is that? No, it's a we, we few whispers of the tall grass vagabonds. Vagabonds is the third book, right? Did I miss something there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. So, uh, Jeff Miller and I were in Special Forces uh, at the Tench Group. And uh, we did a lot of amazing things while we were there. And then after after we got out of the military, we decided to do something with our lives. And in those days, there was no contractor industry run by the FBI and the rent-a-cops. So we had to invent our own. In those days, you had to find a project, see somebody that needed something, convince them that you were the solution, and then go on from there. So the book is snippets of 40 years of doing that, you know, becoming consultants to the mining industry, helping people recover kidnapped victims, um, verifying computers. What was another thing? With, other well, it was something there with doing something with virgins. <laughs> I but what, that, uh, the third book is about our wanderings for 40 years. When is the book due out? What's the release date, and where can people go? <laughs> uh, wait, I'll put my co-author on. Yes, who is extremely handsome and invented tweed. <laughs> I didn't tell you to leave. Hey, good evening, Jeff. Hello. So where where can people go and there you go. where can people go and uh, pre-order Vagabonds? Uh, Amazon right now. I'm sure I'm trying to get myself centered here. It's all good. I'm sure once it comes out it'll be in all the normal book purchasing areas, but right now it's available for pre-order on Amazon. Okay. All right, thank you. Oh, vagabonds, tourists in the heart of darkness, and it's uh, published by a company called Case Made out of London. Yep. Uh, so we're going to talk about vagabonds in depth with you and Nick on the bonus segment. Um, for everyone who joined us live tonight out there, I just want to say thanks for coming, uh, spending some time with us and Nick. Um, please remember to like, share this video, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Tell your friends about the channel. Tell your dog about it. Uh, spread it around as much as you can. And down in the description, there's a link to our Patreon page if you want to get involved in supporting the channel and get access to our bonus segments, uh, like the one we're going to do with Nick and Jeff in just a moment here. Jeff, did you say Vagabond's Tourists in the Heart of Darkness? Tourists in the Heart of Darkness, yes. Dave, did I uh, forget anything to mention anything here tonight? Uh no I I don't think so do we have a do we have any more questions no that's, that's I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing and uh, no next clue. next so week, sit down and something will happen 
Next week, uh, episode 77, we're going to have John Gardner on, who is the author of The Fading Light. He served in the Australian SAS and the Rhodesian SAS and then South African Special Forces and became something, uh, the pejorative term, a mercenary, if you will, uh, after all of that. So he will be on next uh, next Friday. We're excited to have him in here. I'm like halfway through his book. It's It's super. So Jeff, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, for everyone who sponsors the show, we will see you guys for the bonus segment. So thank you, everyone. That's it. No, That's it. The, kick us the off. bonus segment is oh, the bonus segment. We are the bonus segment. Oh, cool. I am the bonus segment. Oh, what the hell? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.